Welcome to a Weekly Stuff bonus podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as we are every month now to talk about classic Doctor Who. Yes, we are. This month on the show we are talking about the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, and the classic story, Kinda. Kinda. Or, or I think how the title came about is they kept on asking, they showed the story to a bunch of people and they said, do you understand what just happened? And they all went, kinda? That's like, pretty much that's it. That's a title. Yes. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. I do want to note, I am recording this in my fourth Doctor scarf that I yeah. bought. I feel kind of silly with it on indoors with no coat on, so I'm probably going to take it off at some it's point very in this recording. Because also, we're not talking about Tom Baker today. We're talking no. about Lucy Davison. So you should have brought in a stick of celery and just put it in your like pocket or something. Well, I had just bought the scarf, and it, it we did have like our first uh, snowstorm of the season yeah. here in Colorado. So like it served a practical purpose on the way over here. But for now, I'm just wearing it to help get in the mood. But you're right. If, if we're, the doctor we are talking about today does not wear a scarf. No, he wears decorative vegetable. Yes, and, and it is a lot of cricket stuff. It's a good costume. It's a good costume. Yeah, it's got question marks. It's, it's the whole. We are in Jonathan. I'm very pleased and sort of tentative that we are now in 1980s Doctor Who. We're in the last stretch. It's a journey. Yes, we're in the last stretch of classic Doctor Who. You know, we are. We, we made it through the black and white years. We made it through the unit years. We made it through the insanity that is Tom. The wonderful insanity that is Tom Baker. Yes, and now. Now we're in the 80s with, with John Nathan Turner and, and the BBC trying to actively destroy the show and question marks on the costumes well, I have the Peter Howell theme. It's all, it's all different now. I have a lot of questions about this, Sean. But first, let's just set the stage. We've been doing this every month. If you're just coming in now, this is our sixth episode, even though it's the fifth Doctor, because we did two Tom Baker stories, because he was around forever. Yeah. So you can listen to both of those. But we are back with the fifth Doctor. The point of this project, as always, is to help ease those uh, who have maybe not gotten into classic Doctor Who into classic Doctor Who by picking some of the best or more, most interesting stories, and hopefully both, if they overlap, yep. uh, of the era that we are talking about. Today we are moving on to the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison, as we said. But also, I think, as notable as the Doctor and all that stuff, this is when we have to start talking about all the periphery you're talking about. Yeah. Which is, and it's interesting because it sort of mirrors, if not qualitatively in terms of the production changes, what Modern Who is going through, which is a huge behind-the-scenes shift, and I think it's useful to look back at this moment as a cautionary tale, probably. Yeah. But, you know, still interesting. So, Sean... Throughout the 1980s, the show was produced by John Nathan Turner, yes. had a lot of changes that you mentioned. Where do you want to kind of start that discussion of the era Kinda takes place in? Yeah, so like, because obviously we'll, we'll, we'll spread this conversation across these three podcasts. Because again, he, like John Nathan Turner was producer for the most number of Doctors by far. Because he was the producer for um, the last season of Tom Baker. 
like all three seasons of Peter Davison, the two seasons for Colin Baker, and all three Sylvester McCoy seasons. Like he was like when I say that he was the producer for Doctor Who during the eighties, I literally mean he was the producer for, for Doctor Who from the year nineteen eighty to the day it was canceled in nineteen eighty nine. Yes. Technically, like technically, he was fired in nineteen ninety because the show was technically on hiatus before it was technically canceled. So it's like for the entirety of the nineteen eighties. He was the producer and effective showrunner on the show because he went through a number of different script editors. We'll, we'll talk about those. Kinda itself went through three script editors. Yeah, you'll learn on the like the bonus features. It's fascinating. Yeah, so so like it's a it's a really interesting, strange period in the history of the show, and I think it is typically looked on, and and I think it's fair enough that I kind of look on it this way as the weakest period in the history of the show. It has, but that's a long period. It's, it's it's a long period. It is like a period of weird and strange decline that you know involves a lot of stuff with like this competitive like weird relationship with the BBC and Michael Grade was a, who was a person at the BBC at the time who specifically kind of had it out for the show and and John Nathan Turner's sort of like larger than life personality kind of guiding things behind the scenes because you know obviously he was also as producer he was instrumental in selecting who each of the different doctors were going to be so before we talk about like Peter Davison and the fifth doctor years specifically we have to talk about the last Tom Baker season because that's when John Nathan Turner comes on so Tom Baker was on for seven years, which is a long fucking time. And six and, and three of those years, um, you had Peter Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes, which we talked about with uh, with Braden Morbius. And then you have was Graham Williams comes on after that, and he's the producer for three years. And those and he's, and those are still good. And obviously that's we talked about that on the City of Death the last uh, episode. But that was started around the shift of um, the show, sort of like getting having this this tentative relationship with the BBC because the Hinchcliffe years were dark and violent and weird and experimental and so they basically the BBC kind of pressured uh, Hinchcliffe out of there brought on Graham Williams and Graham Williams had this sort of um, objective of make it lighter make it funnier Tom Baker is obviously a very gifted comic actor as well as a dramatic actor so that kind of helped um, and those years, the Graham Williams years, are kind of inconsistent, but have lots of bright spots. Like, you know, the Key to Time season is great. Obviously, City of Death is great. Douglas Adams, you know, in, in his two episodes with, like, the Pirate Planet. And then Shada, which you can now, is three episodes if you get the Shada Blu-ray now. And, and a very important piece in Doctor Who history, because that was the last one of that production team. Yes. And the last one of the 1970s. So it's the last of all these things, and it wasn't really completed until 2017. Which yeah. is cool. We talked about that on a recent uh, main Weekly Stuff podcast. Yeah, so. So, and so like Douglas Adams was that Douglas Adams year. That was the last year with Graham Williams. And what feels like like the old like classic, classic Doctor Who, if you want to like make that distinction. Uh, before Electronica entered the theme song. Exactly. Is that yes. where we want to go with yes. it? Yeah. And so then in 19... So then eventually they, they, Graham Williams left the show and they brought on John Nathan Turner as the producer. And if you've listened to our main podcast... And our like Doctor Who discussions on our main podcast over the years, you've probably heard me allude to John Nathan Turner or JNT as he's often referred to, because he is this really controversial figure in the history of the show, and and there are a lot of reasons that go into that. And so, and one of the main ones is when John Nathan Turner came on, he made this huge, huge, massive sweeping change to basically every single element of the show. So, and and one of like the most notable ones is like down to the theme song. Like they had been using. More or less, the, the Delia Dibbershire version, the original version of the theme since 1963. Like, some modifications here and there, but generally speaking, it was that exact same version of the theme. 
Um, and and one of the things that Jaden T did was he came on and he said, let's like spice it up for the 1980s. It's a new decade, new theme. I will say, he was fucking prescient in where the 1980s were going to go because that yeah. is an 80s ass theme. It is very, it's very defining of yes. the tone of the decade. Either he was prescient or it helped define the culture. Maybe a little yeah, of both. Probably both. But yeah, so he brought on um, Peter Howell, who would be a number a composer among a number of composers that would work in the incidental music over the years. And he's actually, Peter Howell is the incidental composer for Kinda, which is the episode we're going to be talking about in depth. Um, and Peter Howell made the sort of like the updated electronica theme that starts with a that I always really love. And I really like that version of the theme. It's um, very good. It's very good, and it's just, you know, it's like a whole new logo. They took a new picture of Tom Baker staring bewilderedly into, bewilderedly into the camera. It's the one Doctor Who face credits shot that looks like the Doctor didn't know he was being photographed. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, it's a funny, weird photograph. Um, he changed the costume for the Fourth Doctor, and, and I really do not like the last season Fourth Doctor costume. It's like this weird, sort of like burgundy red, and it loses the like rich sort of, like, variety of colors that... Because he even changes had. the scarf, which... Yes. There's a whole behind-the-scenes drama of that that John Nathan Turner wanted to get rid of the scarf, and Tom Baker and the costume designer fought to have just a different scarf. Yes. And so that's where, like... And then, then I think, the most infamous change in the most absurd, horrible, just, like, like abjectly stupid fucking idea, maybe ever in the history of the show, is the question marks on the costume. And so for Tom Baker's last season... He is stuffed into this bad burgundy coat with this dumb burgundy scarf that doesn't look cool and with fucking question marks on the collar of his white shirt. And every subsequent doctor for the 80s over JNT's tenure would have the, the question marks and every single actor hated it. Like, like basically, every all those actors, like Peter Davis and Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy, all had severe concerns about specific elements of their wardrobe. They did not have complete control over their wardrobe. Um, some of those costumes I still like. I'll say, I would not have guessed that about Sylvester McCoy, because he leans into it. He yeah, uses that, that question mark yeah. umbrella well. It, he, he is the one, I think, that most pulls it off in a lot of ways. But yeah, yes. it is, it's, and so, John Nathan Turner's sort of, like, figure on the show is it definitely felt like he, like, it's, it's extremely noticeable when he takes over. In a way that, if you're just a casual viewer of the show and you're not interested in what's going on behind the scenes, you'd be forgiven most of the time of being like, oh, like, yeah, like, things changed when you went from the third Doctor to the fourth Doctor. But there's still, like, the core, like, like the, the opening credits is still the same. Like, a lot of the names in the credits is still the same. Like, you're still going to see Barry Letts pop up every now and then as, like, a figure in the show, as an executive producer or director or writer of an episode. But just in general, it feels like the Doctor Who you'd been watching as a broad spectrum, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. This is a hard 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 shift and a part of that was also not just what you saw but going on behind the scenes is that he also um one he he got rid of dudley simpson which is one of the greatest crimes in the history of of classic doctor who the composer yes the the composer who we've talked about on most of these episodes because he did incidental music for the vast majority of the history of classic doctor who he got rid of dudley simpson brought on folks like peter howell and several others that still did good work but like Fuck Dudley Simpson, Dudley Simpson. Well, and what he did is he went completely in house with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which yeah. Dudley Simpson was not a part of. So it was half a cost saving measure, half a creative decision. Yeah, 
to he also stopped working with a lot of the like recurring writers. Um, I think there's only two writers, Robert Holmes and Terrence Dix, that kept on working and wrote a couple of episodes. Like Robert Holmes in particular, like he did not write any stories for all three of the Fifth Doctor years until the last one. Like he wrote the last Fifth Doctor story, Caves of Androzani, but nothing in between there. And I know and he has t- written like one or two stories stories per season since the second Doctor, yeah. like the last the second Doctor. Well, season. and the Terrence Dix story in. Baker's last season, which is part of the the State of Decay, I think it yeah. is, was written years, years earlier, and they just like they were like we needed an extra story. They dusted it off and changed the names, like you know. Yeah. So so they like you know basically all new writers, and there aren't a lot of very notable writers um, in this era. Where like the episode we're talking about has um, like one of the only, and then also directors. Like most of the directors that had been working on Doctor Who over the years did not come back, and he also didn't manage to. And and when and when we were talking about Kinda Proper. I have a whole uh, interview that I want to read from that's very interesting um, about this. But, like, he, he didn't keep directors very well, and he didn't bring back old directors. So it was like, there is something about JNT's era that he had this extreme resistance to bringing back anything old from the show. Um, his direction also, like, like overall on the show, pushed it back into the, like, kind of more weird and violent territory that you like kind of would associate with the Hinchcliffe years, but I don't think with anywhere near the skill and elegance. And so that's part of what got it in trouble with the BC. We'll talk about that a lot more um, when we get to the Sixth Doctor, because that's where it becomes much more of an issue. But it's true of the Fifth Doctor years as well. And I think like some of his style of Doctor Who is just kind of unpleasant. Instead of being dark, it's just like, ah, this is just kind of gross. Like, this isn't interesting. This isn't, like, mature or interesting in that way. It's just kind of, like, violent for violence sakes to sort of, like, you know, uh, uh, shock the viewer in some ways. And so he he's this weird, controversial figure. The last big change, I guess, thinking about it, is companions. And this is, particularly for the Fifth Doctor, a weird issue, is that um, John Nathan Turner really wanted to bring back a bigger crew. Uh, like like the way that you had in the first Doctor seasons, like talk go back to our Aztecs episode and where we talk about um, the full crew that we have there of Ian, Barbara, and Susan, as well as the Doctor. But um, John Nathan Turner also had this tendency of making companions like in this very sort of utilitarian way. Uh, for example, we have the companion Tegan, who is an Australian stewardess or flight attendant stewardess at the time. Um, who is existed and was Australian specifically to try to cater to and get Australian viewers. And, like, that's why she's Australian. And then also this is the Sean, period. can I tell you something? Yeah. I watched all of Kinda. I would not have known she's Australian. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the, the one of the blessings of Kinda is that the companions don't really show up too much. Uh, um, and then one of the, the, when we talk about the Sixth Doctor, his main companion, Perry, is quote-unquote American, you wouldn't be able to tell from the accent, she's supposed to be American. And that was because this was also the period where the PBS, where PBS in America was showing reruns of Tom Baker stories, and so Doctor Who got this small cult following over here, so JNT also had this obsession with like, going to America, going to the conventions, like, showing off Doctor Who in America, like, the, like, sort of, like, the nerd convention thing in, in America was just starting kicking off, and, like, Star Trek conventions, that kind of stuff. So they started doing Doctor Who conventions, and JNT would go there personally and show up there, and so he made Perry an American companion, um, Perry also being uh, the Caves of Androzani companion, so right at the end of the Fifth Doctor years. Um, she's American to try to cater to an American audience, which, like, such an unbelievably misguided decision, uh, which we will talk about with Vigis of Ars more specifically when we get to Perry. But, yeah, his his whole aim with the companion thing, 
laden down the fifth doctor with all this baggage and the fourth doctor's last season also because um if you go on the um like i'm on the tardis wiki right now which is like like the doctor who fan wiki that has a lot of good like sort of cast and crew information and they have for the seasons a section that is recurring cast and for the vast majority of doctor who it's two names and sometimes three so it's like you know for the vast majority of doctor who it's like tom baker and, 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 you know, Elizabeth Slayton, the Sarah Jane Smith, is like the Doctor, the Companion, the Doctor, the Companion, like the Doctor, the Companion, K-9, blah, blah, blah. And then you get to season 18, and there are seven names, one of which is the Master that they brought back. That's like, eh, maybe he's not true recurring cast seasons, two stories, but whatever. But it's like the last Tom Baker season has Tom Baker as the Doctor, Lala Ward as Ramana 2, who leaves halfway through the season, uh, John Leeson as K-9, who leaves halfway through the season, Matthew Waterhouse as Adric who we'll talk about, who's introduced halfway through the season, Sarah Sutton as Nyssa, who we are kind of not going to talk about because she's not really in Kinda. Um, I'll, I'll address her. But but she's introduced um, near the end of the season. And then Tegan, who's introduced in the, the Fourth Doctor's last story. So over the course of his last season, he says goodbye to two companions and is introduced to three companions, one of whom is in his last story. And then the Fifth Doctor is just thrown into the situation where he has three different companions. None of them synergize well. Like they're they're just like this group of sort of random people, and none of the writers knew what to do with it. So I think maybe that's where we, if you, unless you have other comments or questions, we can start to transition to talking about. My Kinda. only comment is that I'm actually very excited to get to the last Tom Baker season, only because I'm so fascinated by what the fuck that thing is. It's really weird. Yeah, yeah it features very... it features a trilogy of stories called the East Space trilogy in the middle because Adric does not come from our universe; he comes from East Space. I don't really remember what eSpace actually is. It's a different universe, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. No, um, I'm just... I'm so curious. But yeah. yes. Uh, so where do you want to go next? you want to talk about Kinda and the Fifth Doctor and all yeah. that? Yeah, let's talk about Kinda. Um, so Kinda comes from... This is from the first Fifth Doctor season from that's like 1982. Because actually they took a year off, basically, between the 1980 season and, and the... Uh, fifth Doctor's last or first season. I think Tom Baker's last season extended just into 1981. Yeah, and then like, most of 1981, yeah. there was no Doctor Who on the year. Yeah, on the air. Um, yeah, Tom Baker's weird because he has. Well, he's weird for many reasons. His run, <laughs> yes. his, his run is weird because it technically starts in 1974 because Robot Part 1 aired December 29th. Right. And into 1981 because he had like one episode there. It's kind of like David Tennant is 2005-2010 even though that's a Christmas and a New Year's Day episode bookending that. Exactly. So it's very facetious to actually call those his years, but that's how the usual count is like on yeah. the DVDs. Anyway. But yeah, so we're in 1982 now. Yeah, so we're in 1982 um, and, and we're... So we've got the fifth Doctor, we've got these three companions, Adric, Tegan, and Nyssa, um, and then we, we, we also have um, a bevy of uh, script editors to sort of briefly address. We have Christopher Bidmead, who was the script editor for the last Tom Baker season, that's the only season he was on. He did some work script editing the Kinda script, um, but then he was off the show before this season. And then you had Anthony Root, who was like a weird temporary script editor who they put in to be script editor. And he was like, I think I can do this. And was the script editor for like a month. And he said, I don't want to do this anymore. And so he left. And so then we bring on um, Eric Sayward, who is the like, I think he's like the one sort of like figure for me you can latch onto in, in the JNT, like the, this sort of like half of the JNT years. Like the Seventh Doctor's last two seasons are, are different, and we'll talk about that there in that, that episode. 
But Eric Sayward is the script editor for, like, basically the vast majority of Peter Davison's run. If you ignore, like, the, the brief amount of work that Anthony Root did and Christopher Bidney did for the Fifth Doctor. And then for basically all the Sixth Doctor. So Eric Sayward is basically our script editor. He also wrote most of the best episodes from this era. Like, he wrote Earthshock, which is the story where Adric very suitably is, is brutally killed as he crashes into the surface of prehistoric Earth on a spaceship. Um, he, and he, he writes a lot of the good, good episodes from this era of the show. And he, but like again, some like behind the scenes stuff. He had a very combative relationship with John Nathan Turner, as you will hear when I read this interview. Um, and then our writer is Christopher Bailey. Um, he only wrote two stories, Kinda, and then Kinda has a sequel story called Snake Dance, which is not quite as good, but is also one of the better Fifth Doctor stories. Um, and Christopher Bailey is an interesting writer because he had this interest in sort of Eastern mysticism and Buddhism as a philosophy in particular. And some of that stuff is stuff that manifests in, in Kinda in this weird sort of like... He had an interest in it. I'm not sure he had a grasp on it. But Sure, yeah. Like, I'm not going to call it like it's like an exploration of deep Buddhist philosophical themes, but it's like it, it's one of the, the elements that gives Kinda this very different feel. And it's one of the things, of the reason why I picked it um, was because one, it's, I think it's really good and I really like it, but it's also a lot of the Fifth Doctor era is weird, and like a lot of the John Nathan Turner years are weird. A lot of them not in good ways. Well, I was going to say, it's easy to point to why like Colin Baker's era is weird. Yeah. Like, Rainbow Suit, Perry, they did one season where they did 45 minute episodes. Yeah. The episodes aren't that good. Like, like those are easy ones. Tell me if I'm wrong. It's harder to pinpoint what makes Peter Davison's run off. Yeah, it's just like there's a one. There's a lack of consistency between stories. Like there's a severe lack of consistency, both both in tone and in quality, um, in a way that had not been true for the show ever up to this point. Because um, you could go from something that's like fairly comedic. Um, to something that, like, again, like, where, where one of the companions just straight up fucking dies at the end, which is something that had never really happened, ignoring one, like, sort of, like, footnote from the first Doctor years. That had never happened. It hasn't happened since. It's a dark fucking thing for Doctor Who to do. It's a dark place to go. Like, I mean, Tegan is a companion who is on adventures, like, completely against her wishes. Like, they, she's kind of like Ian and Barbara. She's basically kidnapped. But unlike Ian and Barbara, she doesn't have a capacity to really roll with it. So when she leaves Doctor Who, she leaves, like, the show in tears because she can't take, like, the brutal violence that she's been witness to all along. And it's, like, this weird thing of, like, kind of, like, bouncing between these extremes, these, these tonal extremes, and I don't think the show had a good handle on how to deal with that. And some of those dark moments work. A lot of them don't. And... So it's just this like very strange concoction of, of different elements that then also features stories that were just like in their DNA strange and unusual stories for Doctor Who, Kinda being one of them, another one, another like one of the other stories that was the main one I was considering doing was Enlightenment, which is from later in, in uh, Peter Davison's run, that is also just sort of weird and it's shot in weird ways and it's like the concept of like these like eternal like abstract beings doing like an, a yacht race in space, which is basically what it is. It's such a weird fucking idea and it's really well done. But, you know, it's just, it, Doctor Who got weird. I don't know all the reasons why. It just fucking did. And, but Kinda, I think, is, of those, the best executed of the weirdness. And I think it has, like, a, a heart and an idea to it that really works for me. And it's also one of the few ones that is, like, well-directed in that way as well. So is this where you asked me what I thought of Kinda? Yes, I want to hear what you thought of Kinda. Because I got some, a brief preview on Twitter. But I'm curious to hear more, more elaborated thoughts. I don't know. 
I honestly don't know what I thought of Kinda. I watched it. I thought about it. I thought about it some more. I watched some clips. I watched most of the bonus features on the DVD, other than like the, the commentary. I didn't watch the whole thing with the commentary again. But, but that was helpful because some of the bat behind the scenes on this one is fascinating, and we will talk about that. I honestly don't know what I thought about Kinda because I think it has a lot of... It, it's, it's exceptionally directed. Who is the director yeah. on this? Peter uh, Grimwade. Peter Grimwade. And he, uh, they, they, there's, a, there's a whole feature on the DVD about him, and it sounds like he was a really interesting guy and director and um, uh, one of the people affiliated with Doctor Who who died kind of young, so he's not around to talk anymore, but they had some footage of him, and like he was famous. He was one of the only directors who like directed on the floor rather than in the studio booth, like all these different things. I think it's an exceptionally directed Doctor Who story. Um, I think it, it has a good sense of atmosphere, you know, it has striking visuals from moment one to the end with the inflatable snake. You know, it's it's striking in a lot of ways. I can't tell you what the story was. I can't even begin to tell you what the story was. I can't tell you, like, how the story progressed or what the ultimate goal was other than stopping the snake we met in the last five minutes. Because it's kind of all... There's no... And I'm not necessarily saying this is a bad thing. There is no single thrust to the plot of, like... There's a bad guy and we have to stop him, or right. people are dying and we have to save them. Like it, it doesn't work like a normal Doctor Who story in that way. Um, there are a dozen characters, and you know it's all over the map. The Doctor is not a particularly important character in the story, which is interesting. Like it's a fascinating Doctor Who story. I would have to see it again probably to solidify a lot of thoughts on it. And I would hope I would also want to see it in its proper context. If that I don't know if that helps at all, right. but just like knowing the Fifth Doctor a little more, knowing Tegan Nissa, and well, Nissa doesn't matter for this one, but you know, at you know, some of, some of the you've got to really understand the depth of of Adric as a character. We'll talk. We'll talk yeah. about Adric. Um, I mean, I, I, also, just I just do want to point out also that this is the third Fifth Doctor story. Yeah, that's so weird. So it's like there's not like you say you want more context. Yeah. there's not that much more context. Okay, and so I just don't know what to think about it. Like, yeah. um, I guess in general, does what I'm saying make sense? Yeah, no. Like again, it's it's weird. It's unusual for me. It's like like the way I would kind of contextualize it is it's sort of the closest Doctor Who ever gets to David Lynch. Like it's <laughs> it's it's. it's like, because it's interested in, like, dreams and in, like, sort of, like, this sort of, like, non-logic logic in a way of that, you know, the, 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 the kinda are these telepathic people that have this sort of, like, deep, fundamental spiritual understanding of their place in the world on this planet and, like, contrasted with the very imperialist sort of, like, space colonizers that are, like, very, like, British imperial, almost sort of, like, pantomime people or something. Uh, and, and, and that sort of contrast, I think, is the heart of where the story lies between the kinda, which exist in, on this sort of like level that we can't quite approach but can sort of appreciate, and then the, these colonizers that, in an almost like heart of darkness way, sort of lose their minds because the world, the rigid world that they come from, does not uh, sort of mesh with this sort of more abstract world that they're sort of coming in contact with. And I will say, I guess, you know, one of the things I did think watching it and when I sort of let it sit and thought about it is I, I'm not sure I like this story. I think it's a lot of ideas that are being thrown at the wall and I don't I never got a sense of how they cohere or if they cohere. Like there's a whole thread with this captain on the ship, like on the colonizing crew yeah. who slowly goes crazy. And it's one of the more interesting parts of the episode. And I can kinda see when you talk about it like that, the Heart of Darkness kind of thematic link 
but he also has like no real bearing near the end on the action of what's of other things going on. So like that's an issue. And one of the things I also want to talk about before we get into the meat of the story itself is because I want to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. One of my issues with Kinda throughout it is that four episodes, ninety minutes. I usually have no trouble at this point sitting through a classic Doctor Who story, like especially if it's only four episodes. I'll eat that up like candy. I can sit right. do that in one sitting. Kinda got a little tough to sit through, and I realized at a certain point what it was. I didn't care about a single character on screen in this story. I didn't find a single character interesting. And sadly, and this is something I want to talk about, I, I do extend that to Peter Davison's Doctor. Yeah. And I, that is not me like saying I don't think he's a good Doctor, but in the limited like, amount of stuff I've seen of the fifth Doctor, he's the only Doctor who's never made a huge impression on me. Yeah. Like, we're going to get to Colin Baker next month. I know his stories are up and down. I fucking love Colin Baker's Doctor. I think yeah. he's great. Peter Davison, I just... Even like one of the ones I've seen is Games of Androzani. And he's really good in that. And like he's part of some of the most memorable moments in Doctor Who history. I still don't know if I have a huge sense of him as a character from that. He, he just comes across to me as a little bland and passive. And especially in this story, like the Doctor is f- frequently much more, I don't want to say passive, but reactive in classic Doctor Who than he is in modern Doctor Who because the Doctor doesn't come on a planet, pull out the psychic paper, and just take over everything. Yeah. But even on that level, like, the Doctor usually, in any incarnation, has some kind of magnetism. And I don't get that from Peter Davison. And that's one of the things that, when I talk about proper context, again, third story, maybe it won't help. But just, like, I'd like to know that character a little better. Because as it is, I felt no cohesive center to this story. And that cohesive center, usually even in the worst Doctor Who stories, is the Doctor. Yeah. So, so I don't know. What are your thoughts on him as the Doctor and... and the reaction I have to him. I mean, I, I basically agree with most of what you've said of that. He is, to me, the least interesting. Um, and I think it's something that he gets so much better when you get to, like, the big finish stuff and he's come back to the role older. Because one of the things to talk about with Peter Davison is that he was, at the time, the youngest Doctor. And that was yeah. true up until Matt Smith came in when he was two years old and was like, I can do the Doctor. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Peter Davison was, I think he was, like, 29, 28 when, yeah. he, when he first played the role. Um, and part of the reason that he was cast is honestly... Um, he was um, a major character in a really popular show at the time, All Creatures Great and Small, which is based on a series of books. And um, John Nathan Turner was working um, on that show as well. And he, that was the job he left to take over Doctor Who. And so he basically knew Peter Davison from that show. And Peter Davison was popular and well-known because of his role in that show. And that's basically the reason why he was cast. Um, also, like, Peter Davison was a fan of the show. Like, you know, he watched it when, when Patrick Trout was the Doctor and that kind of stuff. But it is, I think, his version of the Doctor, I think, still can work really well. And I think, like, especially in a story like his Avengers Donnie. And I think in Kinda, I like him in the story. But he is... Passive, like he's he's. I like. I kind of think of him as the milk toast doctor. Like he he doesn't take an active role in the story. He doesn't have that sort of charismatic presence that can that a story can hinge itself on. I think that's one of the reasons why this era of the show is really inconsistent is because he can't like you know like like William Hartnell and Patrick Trout and and, and John Pertwee and Tom Baker could all make like kind of weaker stories still like hang together because they had that presence to them and that's just not the kind of actor that Peter Davison is like he's he's like 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 every doctor has been and I think basically should be played by a very skilled character actor 
but like it's typically a very skilled character actor that like suddenly can become a leading man and you like never saw that before in them and i don't think peter davison has that leading man quality to him like i don't think he can bring that out which isn't like which is something that can work if a story puts him in that position which is why i think for me kendo works because precisely because he's not in an active role precisely because like in some ways there's not even really that much of a plot like like there's there are like sort of plot strands that are going on but there's no like traditional larger overarching threat like as you identified like you've got the mara sort of that builds up slowly over the course of it you've got like the 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 private who goes insane on the ship but it's this sort of more like like strands of story threads that are sort of going together that are are suggesting larger themes and he's kind of in the background observing a lot of that and for me that works but like i agree that it's not he does not have like that presence yet that sort of can pull things through and it's not until i think if you listen to his audio dramas that he sort of gets that deeper grasp on the doctor's character yeah so it's just an interesting thing especially because i am as the scarf can attest to currently enmeshed in the fourth doctor era yeah and there's really not a more magnetic doctor than Tom Baker, yeah. who, you know, um, you know, Tom Baker luckily mostly had very good scripts to work with. Yeah. But I definitely get the feeling if you threw a real stinker at him, he could make it work because he just he would, like through power of personality. Yeah. And you know, on one hand, I do think Peter Davison is somewhat is pretty clever casting against the fourth doctor, because there's no fucking way to follow up Tom Baker with another Doctor like that, you yeah. know? So, like, it does make sense that the Doctor would sort of mellow out after that weird period with the scarf, you know? Yeah. Um, I just... It does feel like it maybe limits some of the things, places you can take the character, you know? Yeah. And even in Kinda, like, it's... It is an interesting study, I actually think, because this was, you know, originally written when Tom Baker was still the Doctor. So, like, in the writing, like, dialogue and stuff, the Doctor is not written all that much differently from what he was in the Fourth Doctor era. And it is a great study in how two actors can play the same character differently. Like, there's a scene, I think it's in the first episode, where um, there's just a really funny gag the Doctor gets... Or where someone is asking him, I, I forget what the exact line is now. I love it was one of my favorite moments, and now I'm forgetting it. But it's a very funny little line where he has like the doctor just kind of ping pongs this response back, and I can totally imagine Tom Baker saying that. But I also the way Peter Davison does it as a complete deadpan is also very funny. So there's little things like that that I find interesting. But yeah, it's 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 it, this is a hard episode for me to talk about for a number of reasons um, that I've outlined, and it is. Yeah. It is just like, it is completely, you know, singular for Doctor Who. And, you know, when sequences worked for me, they worked very well. I just found it kind of hit and miss, I guess. Yeah. Or stop and start. Um, while also understanding, like, I can understand why this one inspires passion. Because clearly, you know, it got a sequel. It got a big finish threequel at some point. Like, yes. yeah. it's, it's a fan favorite. You hear about it, you know, mentioned a lot. And I understand all that. It is also interesting to me to study some of the behind the scenes. Like there's a like 40 minute making of Doc on this on the DVD, and it's fascinating because um, you you hear from most everyone involved in the production, other than Peter Davison. I feel like is one kind of notable omission, and John Nathan Turner, who I don't think ever participated in. DVD uh, I mean, stuff. he he died relatively young. He, he died did in okay. his 40s. I yeah. forgot when. So he I died, think he yeah. died in like 2004 or something like that. Okay, so yeah, they never got him on the record for those. He died um, in 2002. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
But other than that, like, the, the writer is there, the director had died already, but they had archival footage of him talking about the story. And what is so fascinating is it's super candid. Like, that's one of the things about the bonus features on Doctor Who, is they're always very candid. And not a person on that set or in that production agreed what Kinda was about. And I think that's actually one of the fascinating, like, push yeah. and pulls going on in the episode. But, like, Christopher Bailey had one thing he thought the episode was about. Anthony Root had one thing. Eric Sayward had one thing. They both, you know, helped script edit it. They're both in the documentary. Eric Sayward didn't like the script. He's pretty fucking, like, upfront about that, yeah. which is interesting. Um, like, the director, Peter Grimwade, had a different thought on what it was. Some of the actors, have to, like, a lot of them didn't understand it at all, and were just kind of going for it. Christopher Bailey... Sounds like he does not really like the finished product because he feels there's a bunch of elements that are not what he had envisioned at all. Um, they all complain about the snake at the end, which is kind of funny. Yes, yeah. I think yeah. it's one of the more memorable things in the in the series serial. But I do understand it. Yeah, um, it, it, that was an effect they had to sort of like scramble together at the last minute. Yeah, and Christopher Bailey is is so there's a bunch of like tension in the set on this one. There's a lot of kind of unresolved issues and. It is it is fascinating to watch a story where no one agrees what that story is about. And that's not an infrequent thing in sci-fi, you know. Yeah. Um, I think you would probably say that about a number of, like, Andrei Tarkovsky films. You would definitely say that about the movie Blade Runner, which we both love. Yeah. Like, you know, Ridley Scott and Hampton Fancher have completely different views on what that movie's about. And it works. And yeah. I think, you know, Kinda does overall work. It's just an interesting work because of all of that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's one of the elements of where I say that like this is the like the closest Doctor Who ever gets to David Lynch yeah. isn't exactly that place also because I think you could say that about basically every single David Lynch movie is that everybody on that movie has a different understanding of what they're doing. Except it has David Lynch who knows exactly what he's yes, doing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So. It's, it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a weird bizarre um episode of the show. And maybe that some ways that's why like I felt compelled to pick it as because that's the other part of like this project is like it's not just the best ones, it's, right. like ones that I think of that are good that are also like usefully representative of elements of that era. And this was the fifth Doctor Year is by far the hardest I had, um, because I think most of the good episodes from his era are like are are ones like Earth Shock that I don't want to pick because that's the one where fucking Atric is killed, and it's kind of like that's not like. That's not a good one to pick for a number of reasons. Like, you don't know who Edric is yet. Like, like that's not necessarily... It's not every single episode has a fucking companion killed in it. But yeah. I think lots of the episodes have, have, like, weird production issues. Like, more so than before. Like, like the thing that happened with the snake of them basically having to cobble together this puppet in a week because the effect that they were trying to do wasn't going to pan out was something that, like, happened multiple times over the Fifth Doctor years in particular. Like, there's one uh, story, Warriors of the Deep, that very infamously, almost all the effects in that are, like... Basically, the worst the effects had ever been in Doctor Who since like 1963, which is fucking a thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's it's a weird, inconsistent era, and part of that also, I think, for this story that's very notable is we have to talk about his companions. Yes, I wanted to get to companions. that. Um, and and it's the my one regret in picking this one, but I still don't think there was a better one to pick. Is that we don't get Nissa because Nissa is easily the best Fifth Doctor companion, like unquestionably. Unfortunately, she doesn't get enough sort of like room to be able to sort of show that off even in the shows that she's actually in for the full-time set at the beginning of the first episode and the end of the last episode like this one um but yeah like like i think one of the reasons why the peter davison doctor 
gets sort of like shoved into the background is because they have so many fucking characters to juggle and they do not bounce off of each other well the way that Ian and Barbara could be paired off in one subplot into the first Doctor era and it would work fine. Or like Barbara and Susan could go explore something and Ian and the Doctor are paired and it like works here. And it's like not just Kinda, like basically every fifth Doctor story has no idea what to do with these four fucking characters because you have the Doctor played by Peter Davison and, and you have Adric, who's the first of these three companions to be introduced, played by Matthew Waterhouse, who is, um, he's, like, the, the sort of the elevator pitch of the character is that he is a boy genius from an alternate dimension called E-Space, who has a star for mathematical excellence, who's laden with perhaps the worst costume in the history of Doctor Who for a main character. He's basically wearing a multicolored burlap sack with a cardboard <laughs> star on his chest, and he's just... Um, he's a math genius who's an annoying prick most of the time. And that's basically who Adric is. Let's talk about Adric for a second. Yes, we have to talk the about fr- the, the pitch boy genius has worked exactly once in modern popular fiction, and that's Robin. Yeah. And not all the time. Yeah. Once in a while, and even then it's boy wonder. But you get what I mean. Like, yes. Burt Ward's Robin, it works. Other than that, like Wesley from Star Trek, which yes. Adric gives me like PTSD flashbacks he, of. He is absolutely Wesley, yes. uh, but in Doctor Who. And I desperately want Patrick Stewart to guest star at some point and be like, shut up, Adric, but that's not going to happen because that show isn't made anymore. Yeah. You get what I mean. But like, yeah, like it's, I got what they were going for with Adric about two minutes into the episode and I'm like, oh God, this is what Adric is. Because I actually didn't really know who Adric was other than he's the kid who dies in Earthshock. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. I think so as well. He is not the most annoying companion in the history of the show. He's still not Mel. We're skipping Mel. We're not okay. talking, we're not doing Mel. Um, it's like, I, I like Bonnie Langford just fine as a person. I think she seems very nice. But man, did they... She was not a good actress at that time, and man, that character was insufferable. But yeah, like, Adric is just fucking dull. Like, he's an extremely dull character. And I'm, I'm on your Twitter, Jonathan, trying to find the quote that you posted when you were watching. Oh, yeah, this was uh, good. Okay, here we go. Uh, okay. the, the, you pulled this from um, the Wikipedia... Page for Adric, page yeah. Page for Adric. Of, of, because, again, this is... To remember, this character first appeared with Tom Baker, and I'm very excited for the <laughs> last season to see that dy- dynamic, because it's very strange. Um, but from the Wikipedia page, um, unimpressed by Waterhouse's acting ability, Tom Baker suggested that because of his amazing appearance, Matthew should have played Adric like Sabu, a little boy who couldn't speak. I would talk to him rather like Basil Fawlty talks to Manuel, and he'd just nod or shake his head. But John Nathan Turner didn't like that idea. That's a wonderful idea. They should have taken that idea. It wouldn't really work for the Peter Davison doctor, yeah. but for Tom Baker, for him to have like a silent Mowgli-esque companion off to the side, that would be the funniest fucking thing in the world. Yeah. And yes, it's probably the one way you could use Matthew Waterhouse well at this point in his life. Seems like a lovely person. He's on the bonus features too. Yeah. Seems like a really like funny, sweet guy. Uh, and he looks back with a lot of self-deprecation. But um, yeah... Yeah, no, it's just Adric's annoying. But I think one of the, again, one of the reasons why I don't actually mind him that much in Kinda because it kind of feels like they know he's annoying and they put him in an annoying position in the story so that it works instead of trying to make him seem likable or heroic in some ways, which some of the stories try to do, and that never works. It's it's part of the larger issue, though, here with the the four companions is that this story is so diffuse because of it. Because you have the Doctor over here 
Nyssa back in the TARDIS because she gets knocked out at the beginning and she's in the TARDIS. And then Tegan is off on her own walkabout through her mind over here for most of it. And Adric is over here annoying soldiers. And like the four characters are almost never on screen together. And even like subgroups of them are almost never on screen together. And it's a weird quality to this one that I agree like here it probably works better than in other places because those story threads have their own weird things going on and they don't have to cohere as literally. But right, it's like... From this one story, I can't start to imagine what, like, the Tegan-Adric dynamic is like, you know? Well, you get the... I think, like, like the evidence of why I like this story is that you get the one scene in part four where Tegan and Adric are reunited and they have a conversation with each other that the Doctor's not present for. And it's like, why? What? It's like, no useful information is conveyed. Nothing about their characters spark. They have no chemistry. It's just, like, the most useless scene it's like the only reason it exists is because they have these characters and they have to do something with these characters but there's like and that's why i think a lot of this era and like this sort of concept of having this big group didn't work this time was because you can't have any of these companions together alone and have that scene be interesting like they just like those characters don't spark off of each other each of those characters can spark off of the doctor in ways that are interesting but none of them can spark off of each other. And that's why, like, you, the group dynamic doesn't work. And the Doctor basically has his own companion for most of this, which is Scientist Lady. Yes. Whatever with, her with name basic, is. Basically Liz Shaw. Like, it yeah. might as well just be Liz Shaw. Yeah, and, and like, seriously, she's the de facto companion in yeah. this episode. Because she's the one standing next to the Doctor, asking questions, answering questions, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, and, and it's something that it, she almost... Like, her character could basically be Nyssa, not in the sense of, like, that the character is already there in that environment and knows that those things, but the quality of the character of Nyssa. I'll just sort of, like, talk about her a little bit because, you know, we, she's not really featured in the episode, but she's technically the companion at the time. And again, she's my favorite Fifth Doctor companion, and she's the one that, like, if you listen to the Big Finish audios, she's, like, the one that they bring back because she's really good. Um, Nyssa is from a planet called Trocken. From the Keeper of Trocken, which is a story where they bring the Master back in the guise of Anthony Ainley, who is technically her... The Master possesses the body of her father, and that's... And regenerates herself. It's it's very weird. The the Time Lord lore gets very weird. They bend some rules in this this bit of the show. Um, But she's basically this sort of, like, princess from a planet that is basically dead now and has been destroyed. Um, And she's sort of kind of like Adric. She's very smart. She can kind of, like, compete with the Doctor... On intellectual terms in a lot of ways. She's one of the reasons why I like her is I tend to like most companions that have a quality to them that separates them from like a normal earth person. And so she sort of understands alien technology and can engage in that side of the show in, in a way that's convincing in a way that Adric does not. Like Adric is supposed to be able to engage with that part of the show and be that sort of like Zoe from the second Doctor era. A little bit of Liz Shaw because she was a science genius like like that kind of element and be and Romana really had it of being more on an even footing with the doctor but Adric could never play convincingly I think Sarah Sutton does in the guise of Nyssa unfortunately we just don't really get her much in this episode but if you watch more fifth doctor stuff appreciate Nyssa because she's by far for me the most interesting of the three and then we have Tegan who is one of I think the most 
like outside of Mel, and I think even like like different than Adric, she's the most misguided companion in the history of Doctor Who to me. And one of the reasons why I like Kinda again is that it uses her in a way that is so different than most stories, and that she gets to have her own weird subplot where you know she's like in a dream space for most of the story, and then she's possessed well, for like it, half of one episode. It really only lasts the first two episodes, and then she's like off in the background because yeah. it's her uh, possession ends. But yeah, yeah, and then she's sort of possessed for a while, and then she needs to come back in the in the last episode and, and have a boring scene with Adric, and that's kind of her role in the story. Um, but Tegan is basically a like the companion that doesn't want to be a companion, which is not a character that I think you can do in Doctor Who. Like I just don't think it can, like it can work for a story. Like you kind of have seen that in some places with like temporary companions that that don't really pan out over the course of one story or something like that. Um, but Tegan is around like longer than Adric, obviously longer than Adric because Adric gets fucking killed, but longer than Nissa, like by a couple of stories I think, and. She's the, like her story is in in Logopolis, which is the last Tom Baker story. Um, she's she's an Australian flight attendant who is I think she's trying to get to the airport or something like like gets inside of the, the TARDIS thinking that it's an actual police box. I don't know why because she's from like 1980 in Australia. I'm pretty sure they didn't have police boxes in 1980 Australia. I was I've never been. I just assume. Um, but she gets inside the police box thinking she can get some help. And then I, I have not watched the beginning of Legopolis since the first time I watched through these stories. So I don't remember all the details. But basically she is taken without her realizing what is going on. And then this is still the period of the show where the Doctor can't quite properly fly the TARDIS yet. And so the Fifth Doctor is kind of constantly trying to get her back to Heathrow Airport. But never can quite manage to do it. And so it's that sort of... Back kind of like Ian and Barbara, where she's a companion against her will. But Ian and Barbara, by like the third serial, can roll with it. And they just like operate and function normally in stories. And every once in a while it will come up of like, come on, Doctor, can you not get us back? And that kind of stuff. Tegan is just constantly a wet fucking blanket. All the fucking time, no matter the time, the Doctor tries to do fucking anything and she fucking complains about it. And it's unbearable most of the time. I really do not like this companion. And so in Kinda, they put her in this role where she's kind of on her own for most of the story. She's also not like Tegan for most of the story because she's either in this weird LSD headspace or she's possessed by an evil snake. So like, she's not really like you cannot walk out of this and say what are the character traits of Tegan. I don't know. She's not really in it. And 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 once you get to the Fifth Doctor era, I think you'll find that that was a that was a big plus for Kinda. Yes, companions. Much like sex partners should express enthusiastic consent. Exactly. This is a this is a truism for Doctor Who. Uh, other than Ian and Barbara, who got away with it because you know they got into it. Yeah. No. Yeah. It was the sixties. It was a different time back then. Um, but yeah, no. It's it's the companion situation for the Fifth Doctor. I think just never really works. Even when they they cycle these companions out, and you have like Turlo comes in, who's okay, but he's saddled with all this bullshit. Like, you have Chameleon, the robot companion. That never worked out because the prop didn't work. Who's around for two stories. <laughs> it, and then, then of course, the Fifth Doctor gets Perry at the very end when he regenerates. And then after that, they go back to one companion model until the end of the show. Because this one just didn't fucking work. And it's one of the things, if you watch interviews with Peter Davison about his time on the show, like, the main things he tends to talk about of, like, things he was, un- like, displeased with... Because I think one of the reasons why he left the show after three seasons was, one, he sort of took the Patrick Trout advice of, like, leave after three years so you don't get typecast. And two, he just didn't enjoy his time on the show and thought that for most of his time on the show, 
the production was mishandled. And part of that was he did not want to have these companions. He wanted to just have Nyssa, but he couldn't. He, that, that was just not an option because he didn't have the, the clout, you know. And, and that's one of the reasons why Tom Baker also left. That like Tom Baker had all that clout on the show, and John Nathan Turner came in and said like, no. You're going to wear this burgundy scarf. You're going to wear these fucking question marks. And you're going to hang around with, with boy genius like Nissa, who's kind of cool, but you don't really have any time to, to like work anything together. And you're going to kidnap him out of the Australia. Like, that's going to be your last season. And so he left. Yeah. But, you know, it happens. It happens. If you stay around, if you stay around seven years, something's going to force you off. Yes, we'll yeah. be you know to be honest. But uh, okay, we've been talking around Kinda more than we've maybe been talking about Kinda. What do you want to talk about with the story of Kinda? Now that we've gotten the companions yeah. running out of the way, that makes this notable to you. Um, I think like the first thing I want to talk about is some of like the direction in particular. I like I love the first episode of the story, and I love the dream stuff. I think is like so weird. And strange and unusual for Doctor Who, and is like striking in a way that Doctor Who typically is not. And I think it sort of ties that first episode together really well of of it doing this thing that like Doctor Who didn't do that much of having these like like truly parallel stories of the Doctor and Adric are sort of exploring the planet and stumble into this military base and are sort of dealing with that. And that's sort of like the heart of darkness side of the show. And Tegan falls asleep under some like crystal wind chimes. And is her subconscious is invaded by a creature we later learn is called the Mara. And she's sort of like subject to these weird sort of like mental games of having to confront a doppelganger of herself. And sort of like um, like playing games with this weird sort of like clown-like figure that, that is talking in sort of like nonsense language. But in like the language of dreams. And that stuff is, is every time. Because this is the third time I've watched this story. It's like those sequences always strike me as being interesting and surreal in a way that Doctor Who has never really done. And, like, kind of has never done since that much. Yeah, I, I definitely like all of those sequences you're talking about. I have some stuff near the end I also want to talk about that I really liked. Including, coming soon, Jonathan's defense of the inflatable snake. Okay. Um, because I think it's one of the best parts of the episode. Um, anyway, uh, no. But, yeah, I, I think particularly the stuff with Tegan in the dream world. Where she's talking to a weird, like, goth kid. who yeah. I, is that supposed to be the Mara? Like, yes, okay, yes, that's yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. I think all of that's pretty interesting. They start doubling Tegan up. They do all this CSO color screen overlay that's like very evocative and weird. Again, I don't know if it cohered for me because I think this episode, I to me, pays lip service to ideas more than it directly critically engages with them. But it is all very visually striking. And I also think the production design on this one is very good. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Christopher Bailey... Uh, the writer talks about on the on the making of that like that's not really how he hoped the forest would look. It looks a little too like clean. Um, they were not able to use at this by this point in the show like the the nice BBC studio that they were used to using in like the Tom Baker years, and they were using kind of a more low rent one where they couldn't do anything with the floors. So one of the things you'll notice is this is a very very flat forest, yeah. And that's one of the things like a lot of people on the production were disappointed in. But I think you can kind of easily look past that. It is pretty interesting how thick that atmosphere looks. Like it looks. Clearly this, you know, they, they didn't build a whole forest, but it looks like, you know, there's a lot of distance to that set, and I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, and there's some of the stuff with, like, the wind chimes that's interesting. Um, and, yeah, the, the set, I do agree. I think episode one is probably the best overall episode in this one, and it is. There's a lot of very interesting stuff in it. Yeah, and, it, and it's something of, I, I tend to like um, in Doctor Who when, the, like, they pull in this sort of, like, experimental theater 
quality to it, particularly to the acting. And I think so, like a lot of the guest actors bring that element to it. And it makes a lot of the guest characters in this episode pop to me in a way that in a lot of Doctor Who episodes they don't. Um, and it's something of like the weird sort of like goth clown kid in the dream world who's like sort of a form of the Mara he sort of has this weird, like, sort of, like... It's, like, the acting is just not naturalistic. And it's not going for naturalism. Yeah. Which I think is what it should be done. Because most of the time when a Doctor Who guest character goes for naturalistic acting, it comes across as very boring. And and I think all the characters, with the exception of maybe, like, the scientist lady, who's, who's not a very extreme character, have this very sort of, like, over-the-top way of acting. Like, and, and if you go to, like, the military-based side of things, you have the captain with the great, like, British mustache. I do love that guy. Yeah. He totally feels like he's out of, like, a like a colonial painting or something. Yeah, it's like, it, it's like, it's like, he's like a Monty Python character or something. He totally he's is. so, like, this over-the-top British imperialistic authority figure. There's, I think this episode, um, this story is very funny a lot of the time, particularly with those sorts of characters. And... If I could, I don't remember what the, exactly the line is, but there's something about, like, they're talking about, um, he says something about, like, there are too many opinions on this ship. It's like, is that your opinion? Yes, it is. But the one difference is that I'm in charge. And it's like yes. that sort of lack of self-awareness that that guy has. I do think the guest character acting is fantastic in this one. The other person to mention is the uh, old woman who plays, yeah. or who is like the, the wise, wise old woman of the, of the kinda. And she's the one who can talk. And she has, like, the, the... the There's a great line at some point of, like, why do you speak, simple man, or something yeah. like that. There's some great lines like that that really should be uh, gifts that are passed around a lot more often uh, yeah. in this day and age. But yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that whole element of the story is, is great. I just think the guest actors really sort of pop. I, and also, I really like the guy who... Sort of, because, like, one half of the episode is the... Guy, um, I think Sanders is who it is. Um, that that is the private or whoever that is sort of in charge of the base. Who then slowly over the course of the story is just like going more, becoming more and more and more unhinged. Um, he he sort of tricks the two Kinda prisoners into like kind of allowing him into their like telepathic network or whatever, so he can control them. And he slowly sort of in a very heart of darkness manner, he sort of gets these delusions of grandeur and and kind of regresses into this very childlike state while trying to control this base and using them and playing these games. He gets the delusions of grandeur, but less a la Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now than that weird arc in Twin Peaks Season 2 when Richard Boehmer thinks he's a Civil War colonel. Sure. Because it totally made me think of that when he's building his little town on the spaceship, of that that section, that weird-ass section in Twin Peaks Season 2 when... um, Richard Bamer, I forget the character's name, is trying to like do a big Civil War reenactment in his office. Yeah, but I think, it, but here it says something to me about like the fundamental, like sort of childish mentality and need for control that is like a fundamental element of colonialism. Of yeah, that, like as like because like part of his journey, I think, is just like stripping off all this sort of facade around what is like fundamentally this this childish, destructive need. Um, to be in control and to play and to feel important that is, you know, that is hidden behind all these sort of like st- like stoic British masculine bullshit, which yeah. is like very much what the mustache man has at the beginning of the story. And then he too like reverts into this like very sort of like, like doting grandfather sort of figure after he's exposed to the, the telepathic box. 
Yeah. Just like this, this, some of the, the story are, is hard to talk about because like so much of what happens is not like actually present. It happens in the abstract. Yes, it's very abstracted. These are the sorts of things that I do think if I were to sit with the episode longer, be do you have the time to watch it again, it would cohere a little better for me. Because you've had years to think about this episode. Yeah, yes. And, you know, some of those different threads because they they never draw a specific line between a lot of these different threads. And some of those I think are scripting weaknesses and some of those I think are scripting strengths. But it's it is an interesting and notable part of the episode that like really like the central threat that's resolved at the end with defeating the Mara has nothing directly to do with the captain going crazy on the ship. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is something that throws you off a little bit. Sure. In that it's more of a thematic tonal connection than it is a literal plot one. Like defeating the Mara frees the dude from his insanity, but it's also not like a pressing thing of like he's gonna hit a button and destroy the world. Or is he at the end? Does he have a bomb? Yes, yeah. He that's what, that's right, like, like that's that. the end of the story is that like he has gone so far down his like own weird insanity of of thinking that the trees are like monsters that are trying to attack him that his solution to that is to blow up the entire okay. complex it, and the world ignore some of what I said then I yeah. thought I was getting this mixed up with the episode um, The Face of Evil which I also just watched right. which is also about a like colonial force on a planet, sort of, on a planet with savages. Yes, except I, on, a planet, on a forced planet on with a forced savages. Planet, but that so. one's a very dark force. This is very bright forced. But there's enough like little similarities, yeah. and it also ends with someone wants to hit a button and blow everything up. I thought that's the one I was thinking yeah. of, so sorry. Yeah, this one has the, the great scene where they're wiring up the bombs, and then the, the, the mustache guy who has like, gone full into like doting grandfather mode. Which is very funny. Yeah, is like, going through this whole process. Is, like, and and the, the nexus of all the explosions where it'll be the most powerful is right here, right where the one guy is sitting. It's like, perfect! Yes. <laughs> like, that's what I want! Um, yeah, because yeah. it is like, you know, it is this element of him being driven to insanity and what the, the Mara is in that side of the story and what you sort of find out like through the talking to the old, the wise woman of the Kinda is that the Mara is an agent of chaos fundamentally. It's like it comes from, I like this, like it comes from the dark places of the inside, which is a good little like like weird concept of like a way to sort of explain what the Mara is without really explaining what the Mara is. Um, but that it sort of like wants to feed on chaos and destruction and sort of is part of this sort of cycle of destruction and rebirth that, that the Kinda are aware of on this planet that the rest of the characters are not really because they have been injected into this and are not sort of like exposed to the spiritual telepathic nature of what all the Kinda have. Um, it, it, it is something that it's, it, it is a hard story to sort of like fully grasp all the, all the different threads, but it is something that I think for me... All because I th- this is the experience I had the first time I watched it. There is something I feel like is cumulative about it that for me, like like both of those sides of the story, the Mara and and the military base, build up together to be this sort of like interesting conclusion that is about these things of like being at like being comfortable with the, what you have control over in yourself in your community and not like sort of like trying to be this 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 character who's a, like the 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 military commander who is afraid of everything because he doesn't have control over it. He's afraid of the forest because he doesn't understand the forest and he can't like control and grasp and manipulate the forest. And and that is what sort of reverts him to the childlike state and the state that the, the Kendar in is so much at like sort of peace with themselves. I think it's an interesting dynamic that again, it's something of like that resolution and that conclusion is something that Doctor Who never goes to. Because most of the, like a lot of the time Doctor Who honestly will t- has this tendency to sort of like very subtly reinforce sort of like British imperialistic themes because it 
is going to like it's it's inevitable at some point um like it's inevitable at some point to read the doctrine a lot of stories as being an element of british imperialism as opposed to being opposed to it which is what they want to draft the figure as but he's not always i think actually properly narratively put in that position and here the doctor is like no like this isn't my story like i cans off like i get to sort of wander around and witness what's going on but this is not this is not like me this is like i don't control this planet any more than they do like the doctor himself thinks that the kinda are savage for like most of the first episode and then realizes that he has the same attitude that the 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 colonizers have is is it's something that like the the show is just usually not aware of those kinds of ideas. Yeah, I, you know, I do think there's an argument to be made, and actually, um, I think it's Eric Sayward makes the argument in the bonus features that there's a more character centric, like doctor centric specifically version of this story you could tell, where like that awakening he has of like maybe I was prejudiced in thinking that too and learning to like you know not tie into these imperialist themes like that's a story that you know might resonate with some people more because it would have more of a clear center and like Eric Sayward talks about in the bonus features that he felt like the way Christopher Bailey wrote this one the doctor was off to the side and incidental and it, it didn't feel to him like a proper Doctor Who story because of that I don't know if I fully agree with that specific criticism I do see how you could rework it to fit that more it also wouldn't quite be the kindo we got for yeah, better it, or for it worse would, like, I think one of the reasons why I like it is that it doesn't conform to that and I, I tend yeah. to like when Doctor Who tries to push the boundaries of what Doctor Who can do and one of the ways you can do that is make it so that the Doctor is not the key central figure of yeah. the story because like one of the main character traits of the Doctor is that he's a control freak that like every time he walks into a room he has to be the person in control of the room like and he hates it whenever he's not like that is like for through most of the incarnations I think the fifth Doctor is a bit more lax on that but generally speaking and especially when we get to Colin Baker like that is to the Doctor is is that if he walks into the room and everyone doesn't think that he's the smartest person in the room he gets upset about that fact it's and and I like I kind of like it when no like this isn't about you really like this is like you can kind of help out a little bit but ultimately this situation probably would have resolved itself without the doctor like like the the kinda would have probably managed it the wise woman would have probably managed it managed it like they have that whole great sequence one of my favorite parts of the story when the the wise woman who I've, I've now see is called panna um is it finds the doctor with the scientist woman and is just like no i want the scientist woman like i don't care about you yeah. and, and and she says um this great line what's he babbling about no male can open the box of jana without being driven out of his mind it is well known unless is he an idiot are you an idiot well i suppose i must be i've been called one minute keep silent idiot yeah. <laughs> and and that's i like that part of the story that it's like that's not that's like like the doctor is an idiot like you this is not your story dude Get out of here. Like, we want to talk to this lady. Like, she's the one who can actually resolve this situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it okay if we jump ahead to the snake scene? Sure. Okay. I want to offer my defense of the snake scene. Okay. And the puppet blow-up inflatable, like, pool toy snake. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. I think that sequence is very interestingly directed where you've got all the mirrors in a circle and this thing is kind of rising up through it and you have to kind of, you know, it's this kind of moment of faith of like hold the line until we can get it. There's the the threat that like Tegan might be drawn back in. All of that. I find it pretty exciting. I also think because it is the fakest looking fucking snake in the world, its eyes 
like you know look like Kermit the Frog like pinball things yeah. where they've just they've 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 they're sticking in different directions. It's very odd. It looks completely not alive and otherworldly. It's like its jaw is just lax open yeah. all the time because clearly there's nothing to make it open and close. Right. To me, that actually kind of works. It looks inhuman. It doesn't look like it's just a fucking snake. It looks. It it goes so far over the line of being fake. It comes back around to being uncanny. And there's something about that that I actually think, uh, for me, helps illust- like underline the best parts of the episode, which are the intangible, unknowable visual things going on, where the kinda probably understand this stuff, yeah. but the Doctor ultimately doesn't. A lot of the main characters ultimately don't. The, the military people in that Heart of Darkness way can't ultimately understand it. And having the snake be that bizarre looking, for me, there was something aesthetically that worked about that. And it was reinforced when uh, the DVD has a special edition of Episode 4 where they've gone and done a CGI version of the snake and made the snake look very realistic. I don't think that works. I don't think that's what it should be. It's not supposed to be a literal, like, big snake. It's, you know, like, that's not what the Mara is. It's this idea. It's this, like, weird dark force, at least as I understood it in this story. And it being that weird and inhuman kind of worked for me. Now, could you have gotten that across somewhere in the middle between puppet inflatable wacky whaley waving inflatable arm flailing snake man and, you know, photorealistic CGI snake? Yes, there's probably a comfortable middle ground in there, but I liked how it worked and I would actually definitely prefer that to the CGI redo of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically agree. It's just something of, you know, in 2017 or 2018 now, it's, it's hard to get upset about... Bad yeah. special effects from 1982 because most of the effects look fucking terrible. Before I watched um, Kenda, I watched the beginning of Castrovalo, which is the Fifth Doctor's for, uh, first story, just to sort of like get in the Fifth Doctor mood. And I, I really like Castrovalo. And that story begins um, with, with this fucking just awful effect of. I forget, it's it's like the Master's TARDIS is like zapping somebody. I forget what exactly what it was. But it's like he's zapping somebody and you can see him in the monitor. And it's just like, like I could literally make that effect with like the, the, the software I have on my computer in like five minutes. It's the worst sort of like cartoon explosion with like, like flashing like red and yellow colors interchanging. It's really terrible. So going to the, the like inflatable silly looking snake, I also, I don't really have much of an issue with it. And, and it's something of... It does almost sort of contribute to the, like, weird experimental theater show quality of the story that, like, kind of, like, I almost wish that there were just, like, people, like, in the middle of that circle dressed, like, head to toe, all in black, with, like, big sticks, like, waving the the snake up and down, just like, like, no, like, that's what it is. That's actually a very good point. It's like a kabuki or Broadway or some kind of, like, effect that, you know, feels a little more... Broadway wouldn't be this, but a little more folksy. Yeah. That kind of fits the story. And I... Liked, I liked that about it. It, I found that scene freaky and charming. Yes, I, I agree. Like, it, and it's something that I see, especially like if you're watching the story in 1982 while it was being aired. I think it would be way harder to see it in yeah. that light because there you're like, you know, you have all like the issues of people making fun of the show for its bad special effects and stuff like that. But now, from our comfortable position, in 2018, it's like, yeah, it's it looks fine. It looks fine compared to everything else. Like all sure. this video, all this footage looks fucking terrible. No, it's it's that this is actually one of the better looking stories on DVD. They've mm. remastered it enough that it uh, it looks it's a newer one too. Yeah. Relatively, we're into the eighties now. Uh, by the way, I looked it up and I found the line I found really funny in this episode from the Doctor, and I wanted to say it really quick because okay. I forgot it earlier. So this is the Doctor and 
whoever he's with, I forget, um, are eating an apple and they're not supposed to. And he says, you're not allowed to eat the apple. Uh, great line. I can totally imagine Tom Baker doing that. It is like... Um, Peter Davison totally makes it his own, though. Yes, and it's very exactly. funny, in a it's, very deadpan way. Yeah, because like the way that he plays it makes it feel like the Doctor very sort of like naturally realized what he was saying in the middle of him saying it instead of him trying to make a joke about it. Yes, it's just like oh yeah, oh, never mind. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Then goes off. Yeah. Any other final thoughts on Kinda before we start to wrap this up? Um, uh, like I do, th- I do want to like note, like like with that, I do think the story is very funny, and I appreciate that. I think it's it, like, and it's funny in the right places and serious in the right places. I I like it's a weird experimental element. The one, the last thing I sort of want to talk about a little bit is with Peter Grimm Wade, and to sort of like like kind of close the story out, and in some ways preview a little bit also for um when we talk about the Sixth Doctor era and, and continue deeper into John Nathan Turner and and, and the adventures of Doctor Who versus the BBC. Uh, I want to read this interview that. Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a fairly infamous interview from around the time where um, Doctor Who was initially canceled. We'll talk about that, and then was brought back. Um, and it's it's by uh, Eric Sayward, the script editor, um, and talking about his his relationship with John Nathan Turner, and specifically revolving around the issues of getting directors and getting directors back, um, and with Peter Grimwade. Um, so for this interview. Uh, 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 Sayward says, well, the constant thing of having to do everything for Tuppence interference does go on. John can become so unpleasant to someone he's employed, such as his director. The likes of Graham Harper will not come back to Doctor Who if they've got something else to do, which is a funny quote because Graham Harper did come back to Doctor Who because he came back in the revived show and, and did a lot of like Doomsday and a lot of like the big RTD episodes. He did a ton of episodes yeah, for yeah, RTD. Yeah. Very talented. In the director. classic era, he directed several uh, episodes, including Caves of Androzani. Yeah. Um, but people like Peter Grimwade, I, who I suppose is the only other director of any note who has come out of Who since John has been producer, says he wouldn't work with John Nathan Turner anymore, and I don't think Nathan Turner would employ him. And then the question that the interviewer says, there was some row, wasn't there? Sayward. It was a lunatic situation. Grimwade directed a script I had written called Earthshock. He made the story work well, so John decided he could direct Resurrection of the Daleks. Peter had been booked, and then there was a strike. So the story was canceled. Grimwade said, fine, well, obviously we can't do anything about it. If I've got nothing better to do, uh, I'm going to have lunch and go home. So he took me, remember I was an author as well as a script editor on the show, and his production manager and one or two other members of the team. I think there were about six of us. We went to the television center for lunch. I mean, so exciting. It's unbelievable. Only to find when we got back that John Nathan Turner had been shouting and screaming all over the building, how dare they all go off to lunch together and not invite me? Oh no, says the interviewer, Sayward. It's true. Yes, he was furious and it was so silly. How dare they? I'm the one who does the hiring and firing around here. How dare he take... He took exception to me going because he said, how dare he take my script editor to lunch and not me? He took that absolutely as an out-and-out insult, and that was a contributing factor to why Peter has, was never invited back. And the viewer says, no! Sarah says, pathetic, isn't it? It's mind-numbing. One of the two half-decent directors is out on the show he will not use because of a silly, stupid incident like that. Yeah, I don't know if John Nathan Turner was the best person to be running Doctor I don't think he was. Um, you know, Like, I actually wanted to ask you that question. Yeah. Like... Obviously, there are many things you and other people like about this era of the show, yeah. and we don't want to erase that, but at the same time, do you think the things that worked worked because of John Nathan Turner in spite or some mixture of that? I, mean, I think it's mostly in spite. Um, yeah. I think, like, like, you know, and I don't want, I, I do want to recognize that he had a very difficult situation with the BBC, and that, like, is part of what contributed to it, but... 
he also, I think, like, heavily exacerbated that relationship. And if you had a better producer in that role, that, like, maybe that wouldn't have happened. It, like, it would have gotten better. Uh, and I do think, you know, it is important to note that once you get to the Seventh Doctor era, I think it gets very good. The Seventh Doctor's last two seasons are very good, and he's still technically producer of those. But overall, when you look back at it, I think it's important to note that almost every single like major producer that was in the same sort of role that John Nathan Turner was in before John Nathan Turner on Doctor Who was a writer originally and that like that was part of their job like they started as a writer oftentimes they were also a script editor um and then they became a producer and that's how they got into the show in that role and so people like Peter Hinchcliffe or Barry Letts they had like a, an intimate understanding like of a from a creative position of what made the show tick and John Nathan Turner, in like every single interview with him, about him, um, for people who knew him working on the show, it feels like he is like, like when you say the word producer and you think of like the biggest like negative cliche in your mind, that is kind of who John Nathan Turner seemed to be based on, based on all evidence. Well, we'll get to continue that story next month. Yes. Do you want to continue to our preview of uh, our next episode? Yes. Our, our next episode, we'll be going deeper into the 80s, deeper into John Nathan Turner, right to the edge of Doctor Who being canceled for the first time. And we're going to be watching um, what I think is the very best sixth Doctor story, The Vengeance on Varus. Which, which I'm very excited to do this. I already have this one. I don't have to get anything. Awesome. Yes. Vengeance on Veros. Yes. So we'll be able to talk about Colin Baker. We'll be able to talk about his magnificent multicolored rainbow dream coat. Uh, and all sorts of wonderful things next time on Doctor Who.